If you can open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in the 15th verse. I will read to the 20th verse. I'll give everybody a moment. Paul goes on to say, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might have might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for such a marvelous, marvelous testimony of who Jesus Christ is. The carpenter from Nazareth is no less than the creator of the universe. God, great is the mystery of godliness. And we ask you, God, to be kind to all your saints today, God. As we go through these verses, Father God, speak deep to all our hearts, Father God. Let us enter in to what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago, and let let us see the relevance for our own lives today, God. We ask you to bless this service, bless this meeting, bless this message, Father God, and bless our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The last time we spoke about these verses, I actually did a sort of mini introduction into the why Paul is writing what he just wrote. It's some of the highest, if not the highest, Christology in the New Testament, except for what Pastor John read out of the Gospel of John a little earlier, that Jesus Christ The word is none less than God himself. The reason Paul is writing this because of the darkness that was in this church. What happened to this church? A misrepresentation of Christ came into this church. A misrepresentation of God and what it means to be right with God. Who Jesus Christ is and what atonement was all about. And someone came in with a different kind of philosophy and engaging arguments that... Uh, We needed to fast and food laws and ceremonial calendars needed to be taken uh, place with circumcision to be pleasing to God. That Christ was part of the process, but he wasn't all of the process. These things will be examined in more detail in chapter 2. But Paul is combating error with truth. Tonight we'll look at Paul's exalted expression of Christ and why he chose this specific expression of Christ and used it specifically here. There's one major purpose Paul just wrote and what we just spoke for. One specific message. The major purpose is to supply what was lacking theologically in this church about the mystery of Christ. It was to settle the hearts and the minds of this church that was now being a little confused by some kind of error that entered into the church. Going back to, as I just mentioned, some rituals and ceremonies coming out of Judaism and some kind of superstitious folklore of the times. 
the construction of these verses, it's, it's a hymn, it's a song, it's a song of praise to Christ. It has two lines in it, representing all God's work in creation and all God's work in redemption. And that all God's purposes for creation and redemption are found and bound in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there's no mystery about life for the Christian. There is no mystery. The invisible God is not what anymore? He's not invisible. He gave us a full and complete manifestation of himself in his son. I want to speak about what was supplying what was lacking. And that could be interesting. Epaphras, as we know, was the faithful preacher. Epaphras was the one who brought the gospel to this church. It wasn't even a church. He brought it to a geographical location in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And he started witnessing about this message he heard. This message that this man, Paul, from, from Jerusalem, this soul of Tarsus, was preaching this message about uh, this crucified man who was resurrected from the dead for forgiveness of sins. He believed that message, and he went back to his hometown, and he started witnessing to people about Jesus Christ. And he did a pretty good job of it. But we have to recognize that Epaphras, though he was a faithful minister, and he brought this message of salvation to this pagan people, he was first and foremost an evangelist. And it's important for us to recognize that. He was mainly an evangelist, and he had a great skill at organization, because he formed three churches in this area. But he was not a theologian. Paul comes alongside over here to clothe Christ with the divine dignity and the divine glory that he deserves. And that's why we have this hymn. A problem crept into the church and Paul was going to combat the error with the truth of who Jesus is. And we cannot lose that. Who this Jesus man is. He is none less than God in the flesh. Epaphras preached with an evangelistic zeal. He was a gatherer. People came. They heard the message. They believed. But when the church got rocked a little bit by some persuasive arguments by either a person or some people who professed Christianity, professed some kind of relationship, some kind of belief in Christ, but they were all over the map. And it was unnerving this church. And Paul writes to settle the hearts and the minds of this congregation. They love God. They love Jesus. They're saved. They're born again. But they need a deeper understanding of who this man from Nazareth that died for their sins and was raised from the dead. Who is he? So Paul writes this theological track of just how incredible, how deep, how wide, how magnificent this man from Nazareth really is. He's no less than God. Theology is right understanding. And right understanding always settles the heart. Nothing else can. Only truth sets a man free. Theology, doctrine, it's, it's not to confuse. It's to liberate. It's to invigorate. It's to empower. It's to embolden. The Christian witness and the Christian life. I want to know who it is and what he did and exactly what he did. 
This mystery of Christ. Am I forgiven or am I not forgiven? Is it by faith alone or is it by works supplemented? What is it? Is it truly by grace in Christ alone, by faith alone? Then I need to know because if that's what it is, that's the way we're going to live. It has to be settled once and for all. For several weeks I've been going over this text and reading it and praying over it and thinking about it and meditating on it and theologizing about it. And uh, it's interesting how God speaks to his ministers and how God speaks to a preacher. And as I was thinking about this very text and how Paul was combating error with high Christology, with doctrine, with theology, a man comes running out of Starbucks and says, Brother Brian, Brother Brian, somebody I've known for many years. And we start talking, he's a little out there, but we have a good report. He goes, you know, bro, I I listened to you and and I'm really blessed. The next word was, but you know, know, the theology is too much. You know, we got to be just about Jesus. So I said to myself, what does that mean? (laughs) Jesus is theology. How more theological can you get than a God and man in one? How do you explain it? Unless you explain it from a theological, biblical perspective. I can't give you human reasoning on it. I can't give you my opinion. i got to tell you what the Bible says. So he wasn't into all his theology and doctrine. Again, I still don't know what it means. But understand, Jesus Christ is theology in motion. It's theology in living color. It is God in the flesh. Every answer, every question in life, the big questions of life have a theological answer. And this is what Paul was doing in here. When we go to our text, he settles the heart by first telling us that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. So it's more than just, well, just believe in Jesus, I assume, right? It's not about just believe in Jesus and everything's going to be okay. Just believe in Jesus and it's hunky-dory. Don't worry about what it all means. Just, just sing and believe and, and that's all. Put the Bible away. You don't need it anymore. Paul would disagree with that. We disagree with it. He settles the heart by first telling us that Jesus Christ, the ones these people believed in, the ones that Epaphras preached in, about is none less than the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The first point Paul wants to make here is that the image is an exact representation of the character and the nature of the invisible God. Don't miss, don't miss this point. He's the exact nature and character representation of the invisible God that no man can know, no man can understand, no mind can conceive of unless God reveals himself to us. And Jesus Christ is the exact image of the invisible God. The exact representation of his character, his nature, his caring nature, his compassionate nature, his forgiving nature, his loving nature, his merciful nature, his just and righteous against all sin nature, only Christ. Meaning everything God wants us to know about him and his relation to humanity His relational nature is bound up in Jesus Christ, the man. 
I don't want you to miss this because we just read six verses of scripture. And in six verses of scripture, him, himself, or he is mentioned 13 times. Who is it about? That's it. Him, himself, or he is mentioned 13 times. We are to not miss what Paul is writing. Don't think about the, the, the mystical high priest in heaven, Jesus. Paul has our eyes pointed to the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's pointing to his humanity and his divinity. He's the image of the invisible God. And this invisible God is not just to the naked eye. As we just said, this is more to the soul. He's naked to the understanding. He's naked to the mind. He's naked to human reasoning. God cannot be known without a revelation of himself to humanity. He did this first through the Old Testament, through Abraham, the Exodus, through the law, through types, through shadows, through promises, through prophecies. He revealed himself through the nation of Israel and the covenants to the nation of who he is. But he wasn't finished with the world and he wasn't finished with Israel. Then, of course, last of all, he revealed himself to humanity through his son, Christ. Every teaching about God and man's relation to him that does not derive from the revelation of the God-man Jesus Christ is only conjecture. Pure and simple. If it is not based solely in the person and work of Christ, as the only mediator between God and man, this invisible God cannot be known correctly. We can know through the study of the universe and intuitively that there is a God. Paul teaches us that in, in Romans chapter 1. We know intuitively God exists. Men suppress the truth by unrighteous living, Paul teaches us. But inside we know, but that's all we know. I know when I first got saved, I always believed in God. I always believed in Jesus. I had no understanding whatsoever until I walked into a born-again church. And I met the living Savior. I met him in my heart. He was alive and compassionate and loving. The invisible God who I believed, now I knew. Because we see him in his son, Jesus Christ. There is no understanding of the invisible God without a full understanding of Jesus Christ. And this image of the invisible God is none less than the firstborn of all creation. And negatively, we have to address what the Jehovah Witnesses preach, that Jesus is some kind of first emanation of God himself. He's, he's sort of the byproduct, a byproduct of God's nature that God caused and willed it to happen, and Jesus was willed into existence as the first of all God's creation, but only a creation. And then from Jesus took over the reins, and everything emanated from him. It was influenced by him. That's what the witnesses of Jehovah would like us to believe. Uh, of course, we know the text does not mean the firstborn of creation as though he was the first created being. It's a title of honor. 
Every ancient would have understood that this meant that the eldest son owned everything the father had. And Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, the only Son of God, he's called here the firstborn of all creation. Why? Because it's a title of honor and represents Jesus as the owner and ruler of the entire universe. And there's a reason why he's doing this. Paul is going to elaborate it next. He says this in verse 16 and 17. By him, this man that was crucified and raised, this carpenter from Nazareth, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He... The God-man is before all things, and in him all things hold together. To understand these verses, we need to understand the spiritual times these believers lived in. It's not much different than our own. We're going to find out why they were easily seduced into believing this heresy that crept into the church. See, the ancients believed in all these unseen forces. They were caught up deeply in superstition. These inimical powers, these, these powers that were against humanity and they were wrestling with us somehow. These angelic beings that have power over human life and human destiny. That they, they, Paul refers to here as thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The ancient world was bound in superstition. Fearful. Anything that went bump in the night would get their attention. Paul is writing to meet that. Because when you don't know the invisible God, you can fall for any teaching. Because you're bound to superstition and fear about this life and the next life. The false teacher who assumedly entered the fellowship with, uh, with this church under the guise that, yeah, too, I believe in Jesus. But let me... The ancients understood they, they believed in heaven, either three heavens or four heavens or five or six or seven heavens. Before you got to the divine light or the divine presence or the logos of the universe, you had to appease all these rulers and all these thrones and all these dominions that were in the lesser heavens. And you had to appease them by fastings. You had to appease them by keeping the Sabbath. You had to appease them by keeping circumcision. You had to appease them by dietary laws. You had to appease them by aesthetic self-denial and harsh treatment of the body. You had to, you had to do something. Before you can get to God, you've got to placate all these other lesser beings. For me and you, that sounds like that's ludicrous. But 2,000 years ago... That was the norm. That's what they were saved from. Paul says you were rescued from the power of darkness. I have to go back there no more. This man was advocating a teaching that these powers needed to be appeased in order to have good fortune in this life and the next. And it was a combination of Judaism and other elements of homegrown superstitions. And that Jesus somehow was just another being in the heavenly order. That's all. He's just one of the thrones and powers and dominions. He needs to be appeased. That's all. He's part of the process, but he's not the whole process. 
There's a principle to be found here. By elevating any one thing, you diminish the other. And by this man elevating all these strange teachings, they would come to church and hear less and less about who? And they hear more and more about nonsense. Paul's way of dealing with this is twofold. First, he elevates Christ to his divine status over creation. He wants this church to understand the man you believed in who died for your sins, the man you believe who was raised from the dead for your justification, understands something. He's the creator of the universe. The second thing he wants to do here is elevate Christ to his role as head of the church, and we'll speak about that. Here, with one stroke of the pen, Paul subjects every created thing in heaven, that's invisible, and on earth, I mean, that's visible, to Jesus Christ, the man. That humble carpenter that died for our sins is the creator of the universe. Whatever created order there is out there in the heavenly realms, Three heavens, four heavens, five, six, seven makes no difference. Is under the full control and rule of Christ. Because all there is in creation, visible and invisible, was created by him and exists for him. And this is where the plot thickens. It goes beyond many Christians might not perceive this. Meaning somehow... All things go to serve God's plan of redemption, even Satan himself. Even the fall in the garden, even Adam and Eve's disobedience goes to serve a greater purpose in the mystery of Christ. He goes on to say that the image of the invisible God, he holds everything together. You would think, well, maybe he's holding the the gravity, which he is. The whole molecular structure is held together by Christ. But the ancients weren't thinking so much in scientific terms. Paul says everything holds together because he's talking about the whole authority structure of the invisible or the visible world. This applies more to you and me today than you think, and we'll speak about that in application. All angels, demons, Satan himself is under the rule of Christ and go to somehow serve his purpose in redemption. Meaning, don't be scared of them. Don't try to appease them, Colossian church. Don't worry about your fastings. Don't worry about your future. It's all bound up in Jesus Christ. To you and me today, we're like, yeah, we know that, Brian. But 2,000 years ago, they did not understand that. Like when I first got saved, I did not understand that. I would come to church. I would praise God. I would be filled with hope. I would be filled with joy. I'd be filled with peace. I'd be filled with praise. Two days later, I was a fearful young man who thought, I don't even know what I've been meant to be saved. Because why? Because a young Christian goes up and down. I didn't fully understand just how incredible Christ is. I had no idea how secure I was in my salvation. I didn't have to struggle with guilt. I didn't have to struggle with shame. I didn't have to struggle with self-condemnation no more. Christ took it all. Did you get that the first day you were saved? Or did you work into that? Did God bring us into that full revelation of just how secure you are in Christ? Amen. 
I can't believe that I can never be lost. You can never, ever be lost, ever. Even if we're faithless, Paul says he is faithful. Christians still need to hear that today. There are Christians that are thinking you can lose your salvation. No, you cannot. Because he who is the image of the invisible God holds everything in the palms of his hand. Especially his sheep. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2 verse 7. Listen to this. The writer of Hebrews says, speaking about God, you made him, Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. That's his humanity. You have crowned him with glory and honor. That's his ascension and cessation at the right hand of God. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's an expression of a conquering king. You with me? Now he says, this is his reasoning. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of the control. That means nothing means nothing. Thank you. (laughs) But listen to it. Listen to the human part of this man now. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Can I tell you? How the geopolitical situation we see going on in the world is under the control of Christ? Can I tell you how? No. But can I tell you what it is? Yes. Where's our peace come from? By understanding how every political, geopolitical move that takes place in the earth today and show us, would that comfort your heart if you saw how Jesus was controlling everything? Or just knowing that he is controlling everything. That's all faith needs. That's the principle of faith. The principle is is hearing with Galatians 3. Hearing with faith. That's the whole thing. I hear about the awesomeness of Jesus Christ. I hear it with faith. That's all my faith needs. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Everything is put under his control. But if we were to paraphrase, but you know, right now I just don't understand it. I don't see it. But it is. But it is. That's the same point Paul is making in Colossians to this church. There's no reason to fear the inimical forces that are hostile to humanity. You and me might find, depending on our background, we see these superstitious forces at work. We see them in all sorts of religion. We see them in our family, whether it's the Italians with the Malachi and this kind of stuff. And we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was speaking to someone about Christ when they were driving by. He goes, oh, yeah, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know. We went by a Catholic church. He blessed himself four times. I'm like, I'm looking around. I'm trying. He's got to be kidding me. But this is what's out there. Superstition is deep within what? The human psyche. Because God's still invisible to them. That's why. We can huck it up and laugh it off. But at the end of the day, people are waking up fearful in the middle of the night. Because they don't know the invisible God. To live in this world of uncertainty and not know personally the invisible God can only leave you an anxiety of one degree or another. That's it. The first section of this hymn shows Christ as the ruler of creation. All forces, good or evil, seen and unseen. The second stanza of the hymn goes to show Christ as the head of the ruler of the God's church. 
Now, you and me might think, all right, who knows that? Everybody know that? But do you know that the church, it's God's new creation? Do you know the body, the church, is God's extension of the garden and foreshadowing of the new heaven and the new earth? Do you know that God, as much attention, as much power, he put into the first two chapters of Genesis, he's doing right now in this service as I speak and as we think and as we love Christ. This is the new garden. This is the foreshadowing, a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth. God is not overly concerned to what's taking place in Parliament, in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, in the White House. He's not concerned. He's concerned right now all All his attention is given to what's going on in every Christian church that takes place. God is more concerned when two Christians get together over a cup of coffee because that is the kingdom of God. This is the new creation. We're the garden. We are the foreshadowing of a new heaven and a new earth. Theologically, it speaks of God's work of redemption from the fall in the garden to the restoration of a new heaven and a new earth. I think Christians miss that sometimes. I think Christians miss the magnitude and the value that God places on his church. Because most of the time we're just trying to get to and fro to get the church on time and call it a day. But understand something. Everything God is about is his church. God's more concerned about the particular circumstances that are taking place in your heart than all the politics that are going on right now. He can hear the cry of a child saying, God, help me. That's more important to him than a thousand threats of a bomb. God is more concerned about the kingdom of God that's taking place in your life, in your heart. New desires, new affections for him. That's what God is about. That's what God is creating. God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. God is not building any other institution than the living entity Of his body, the church. That's it. Does he not care about the rest of humanity? Yes. But the the rest of humanity, God reaches out through his what? If the church is unhealthy, what happens? The rest of humanity doesn't stand a chance. We're the light of the world. America needs a a, a revival in, in true Christianity. We don't need to go back to conservatism. We don't need this revelation, this revival of conservatism, Americanism of the 1950s and the 1940s. And Listen, that's good, but that's over. America needs a church. America needs Christians to witness and live the gospel. That's what America needs. Amen. America needs Christians to stand up and say, I know the way. I know the image of the invisible God. I know what can settle every anxious thought you have. His name is Jesus Christ. That's what America needs. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. If somehow we can elevate our minds and our hearts to see how important community life is in the church and to see it from God's perspective, you wouldn't miss at all. If you see that God puts all his attention, all his resources into the Christian's heart, So that we would live and put on Christ. And that we would fulfill the first and the second commandments of loving God and loving each other. Can you see right now how incredibly pleased God is with us. As we gather in Christ's name. Don't ever have a low view of Christian life. Don't ever have a low view of Christian service. Never have a low view of a prayer group with six people in it. Never have a low view of a Bible study with three people in it. Never have a low view of only one man with a guitar. Never have a low view of someone handing out a track on 86th Street. Never have a low view ever of what someone's doing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ever. Never. the kingdom of God and it has all God's attention and all God's focus and all God's concern and all God's love let the bed the dead better the dead Jesus says we need that revelation of how important the body is to the head we need that personally He's the firstborn from the dead. The whole new creation will be known by resurrection bodies like his. Now we are living in a spiritual resurrection. That means the new birth. That's what it means to be born again. This is a down payment of what we experience now. We'll experience in its total fullness when Christ comes back. We're in a our glorified bodies in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness reigns. There is no sin. There is no Satan. There is no death. There is no fear. There are no fallen angels. There's nothing but constant love and worship for God and one another. Period. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is authentic Israel. He is the second Adam. He is fully. The fullness of God was pleased To dwell in him. Paul is lifting up the humanity of Christ. And getting the rise that that man had died on the cross. Was no ordinary man. But none less than God himself. Can I ask you something? Do we get so familiar with hearing what I just said. That it's like oh we know that Brian. Would we dare say I've heard that before. Well, teach me something. I don't know. Yeah, teach me something. Give me something new. What's the Spirit doing? What's he up to? He's pointing to the humanity and deity of Christ. That's what he's up to. That's what he's up to. 
Listen, these Colossian believers, like all believers, would need time to grasp the magnitude of this great mystery of God incarnate. It would take time to believe that this one who died and rose again and shed his blood is none less than the second person of the Trinity. It takes time for a, a theological a Christian's mind to develop and to, and to find the security in this kind of understanding. It would begin to change their approach to God, their approach to prayer, their approach to holiness. And that's what Paul wants. And that's what God wants for us today. God was pleased for himself to dwell in Christ. And this is why. Not though Jesus can come down here and say, I'm God. It pleased God for deity to dwell in Christ, verse 20, so he can reconcile to himself. That's the only time it's mentioned of God. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Please don't miss this. The one major thing the invisible God wants humans to know is that through his visible son, he has brought peace to men. That's justification. And peace amongst men, that's unity. So there's no need to try to please the invisible world with man-made religion and empty rituals and to live in superstition and to live in fears anymore. The invisible God became visible and pleased himself in his son on our behalf. And he did it by the blood of his cross. Not just any blood. Moses didn't die for their sins. Paul didn't die for their sins. I didn't die for your sins. The Pope didn't die for our sins. The Son of God, the sinless life of Christ, died for our sins. It speaks of his voluntary giving of himself to atone for our sins. It's Christ's cross work. Not our keeping the Sabbath. Not our keeping circumcision. Not me trying to do the best to try to do more today to love people, though we are to. That should be a a natural outgrowth of our love for Christ. It's not about what we can do. The cross says you can do nothing. You can do nothing. I did it all for you. On the cross, I fulfilled the will of God the Father for you. And I shed my blood. I emptied out my life to the shedding of blood to show you my deep love and my Father's deep love that nobody can know that how much the invisible God loves them. Because if they did, they wouldn't try to please them through empty religious ritual. Amen. You have two things to believe in. Religion And all its emphasis on rituals and ceremonies and fastings or whatever it might be. And all the superstition that goes with it. You have option A or option B. A bloody cross with a loving Savior on it. When we fail and when we fail. When we blow it and we will blow it. We can't offer God a promise. All we can do is go and say, God, here's your son. That's all I have. 
I have nothing but your son, God. Look at his shed blood. He did it for me. And then the tears wear up and, and we get overwhelmed with the goodness and grace of God. And that's what changes sinners. Amen. Pure and simple. So what Paul is saying here, don't get caught up in going back into Judaism. Don't get caught up in getting back into the superstition of uh, your homegrown folklores. Don't go backwards. Just keep your eyes on Christ. Me and you know that. We know that. But for a young believer who doesn't know how faith works, and do you know why faith works? You know why it's faith over works? It's the object of our faith. Faith is a worthless system of trusting. It's the object of our faith. When it comes to application, what Paul is here, the essence of these verses is works righteousness versus faith in Christ. That's what's behind these six verses. That's why Paul goes through an elaborate expression of the exalted Christ. Why? This is why. Because the one who died on the cross and shed his blood is no less than the creator of the universe. And he pleased himself. You're fully acceptable to God forever. You are perfectly accepted by God. Paul's argument goes to establish that the power of faith is found in the object of our faith. And that's Jesus Christ, the perfect man, perfect substitute, perfect savior, perfect God. What I love about this hymn, this song of praise, Paul in Colossians and Ephesians says, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make a melody in your heart. This is the way it would work. A man named Pliny the Younger, he's an historian of the first century. He was writing to Caesar and Caesar wanted to know about this Christian cult. And he says, Caesar, the only evil against these Christians is that they get up in the morning, go down to the river at dawn and sing a hymn to Christ. And and to get the picture of this, understand, they didn't text each other. Where are we meeting? The big rock. You know, the big rock. We'll meet over the big rock. You know, and they didn't come with 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 a flashlight. There's usually one made... One main road down to the river. And then you got all these footpaths that would come and converge on the main road. And you'd be walking in the night, maybe with a little torch. Maybe condemning themselves for something they did the night before. And they would hear someone in the distance saying, he's the image of the invisible God. And then someone else from another footpath. In the dark, you don't see the face. You hear them singing back. Firstborn of all creation. And, and they would come in on the footpaths and they would gather. And, and that's how they met at the river. They would sing all the way down to the river. And the chorus would build up and there would be a symphony. It would be a harmony. And they were praising the risen and living creator of the universe. That's how they sang psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and made a melody in their heart. That's how they gathered in the early church. Think about that picture. Nothing can wash away our sins sometimes than singing about the blood of Christ. 
Who was blessed when we sang earlier? Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. They would be singing this in their own ancient way. Singing to one another. And I can see someone walking down saying, God, the image of the invisible God. He shed his blood on that cross for me. When it comes to being the Lord of creation, we have to understand something. He's the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of history. No geopolitical landscape that he's in right now. The present human history of what's going on right now is in Christ's control. Can you believe that? Do you know that all things are subject to Christ? Invisible and whether thrones and dominions of powers whether kings, whether princes, whether politicians, whether presidents, whether city councilmen, whether senate, whether congressmen. It makes no difference. Everything, though I cannot see how, I know fully it's under the control of Christ. And human history and human destiny is going exactly the way he wants it. What's taken place today did not take Christ by surprise. And somehow, he's going to use it for his glory. And I don't know what that is. I don't know. But one thing I know, it's taken place. Fourth one's a a question, and we'll close. It's a question for all of us. What part of God's character and nature is still invisible to you. His love. His mercy. His forgiveness. His holiness. How do we deal with sin in our life? Have you grasped the holiness of God in Jesus Christ? How about forgiving other people? How about being merciful to other people? How about giving ourselves for the sake of other people? Where we fail is where God is still invisible to us. It's manifested in Christ. It's there. Everything I just mentioned... Paul speaks about in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He teaches husbands how to be loving husbands because of what Christ has done and who Christ is. He teaches slaves to be obedient of what Christ is and who he is. He teaches Christians to be merciful to each other and forgiving each other as God and Christ has forgiven us. So I ask that question as a pastor. What area of our life is God still invisible?